I guess some of you weren't here, so let's just do a quick recap on chapter one, if we, if we can. So the people um, of God had ignored God after returning. They'd been in exile in Babylon, so just here. Okay, they were deported down there after uh, the Babylonians came and sacked Jerusalem. They'd returned um, back into Jerusalem, and the problem was they decided to build some rather fancy houses for themselves. And in so doing, they neglected the building of God's house, his temple. Um, the issue, I guess, the, bigger, the biggest issue in chapter 1, it was the, the fact of their priorities. They hadn't put God first, his reputation, his glory, his house. The people were warned. And the great thing about Haggai, probably unlike many other the prophets in the Old Testament, is they'd heeded the warning. They'd listened. They were obedient. They listened to God through the prophet Haggai, and they'd begun to rebuild the temple, 21st of September, 520 BC. Now, what about the 20th of January, 2013 AD? Have we given careful thought to our ways, as they had done in chapter 1? I guess right now, the present is the biggest issue for many of us. How do I live today? How do I live tomorrow at work? We know the certainty of our status with God, don't we? We know if we committed our lives through faith and trusted in Jesus on the cross, we know that. We know we're heaven bound. But what about later tonight? What about at the office tomorrow? How should we live as a church, both individually and corporately, today? Well, in Haggai 1, the people were called to consider God's purposes first, to put his building first, to pleasure him, to honour him, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 8. And of course, the same applies to you and me. In knowing that Christ has died for me on the cross taking all the punishment that my sin deserves on himself, well, that should guide my living, my thinking today. I'm assured of eternity with him if I put my faith in him. And it makes me long to honour him, to do his work of building his temple today. That is building his church today, the people of God. Now, that means for me and it means for you. Look, shall I come read the Bible with you? Shall I come and pray with you? Shall I pray for you? It means telling others of the good news of Jesus Christ to build the church in that way, doesn't it? Look, I know I might seem a bit strange here, but should we have a coffee? Do you want to know what I actually believe about Jesus? It means prioritising God in all sorts of ways. Maybe our time is the issue. Maybe our money is the issue. I guess the question at the end of chapter one is, have you heeded the warnings? Have you listened Uh, If you have, then chapter 2, I think you'll find, is quite a comfort. The heart that longs to build God's temple today will be comforted, I think, as we look at God's word. So God, through his prophet Haggai, assures the people that he's going to strengthen them. And they're assured that that, that the people have God's help in the present. So to our first point, have a look on your sheets. It should pop up there. God will strengthen those who build his temple. Now, I've got a friend. Kind of an acquaintance, more like. He lives in the, uh, the Channel Islands for obvious tax reasons. I won't go into all of that things. But he, he's quite a wealthy man. And he, you know, he's got large house and very large, you know, lovely cars. His investments have been sound. And they've proved themselves 
his investments of eternity, they prove themselves by the returns on those investments. See, we were considering last week what we invested our lives in, our money, our time, our passion, our energy, all that kind of stuff. Chapter 1 challenged those investments that we were making. Now, chapter 2 will show us how those sound investments prove themselves in their returns. That is, we will see that investments in the work of God have returns beyond in measure. Infinite returns, if you like. God will give blessing to those who truly fear him and those who honour him in their whole lives. Now, to those of us, I guess, maybe last week was a bit of a jolt, a bit of a wake-up call for the priorities that we've made in our lives. Well, I hope and pray that that work of God has begun in you and that you will see that there will be a return for your investment, that you'll be blessed by God in that way of obedience. Now, blessings come in Haggai both in physical means and spiritual as well. But ultimately, it comes through the blessing and the promise of a Messiah, the greatest blessing of all. Now, in chapter 2, the physical blessings come later on in the chapter. We'll look a bit at those next week to the obedient people of God, verses 10 to 20. But it is clear that the main blessing, the main focus of blessing, spiritual blessing, in this chapter comes in these first few verses. Sound investments bring spiritual blessings in return. A bit of background to begin with, though. By now, we heard right at the beginning, verse 1, that nearly a month had passed They'd started to rebuild the temple and they'd come back. Probably most of the work up to this point would have been clearing the rubble. When Babylonians came in and they sacked a city, it wasn't a particularly pretty sight. They didn't sort of take down each brick by brick and sort of pile them up in a nice, nice little pile over here. No, they just absolutely burned everything, pushed everything down. It would have been rubble everywhere. So a month's building work was essentially trying to put things in the right place to maybe even, you know, it was a massive, massive work. They'd have had to re-chop stones to put them into a reasonable size to then move them back into a, a situation they wanted to be in. It was a big progress. There was a big sorry, process that needed to be made, and it was very slow. Without any kind of mechanical aids, preparation on a 60-year-old ruin at this stage would tax the endurance of even the most enthusiastic of us here. What they were in need of was encouragement. The rebuilding was also um, uh, hampered by the fact that we were in the seventh month of the Jewish uh, year here. So loads of festivals, basically. They were all on holiday the whole time, simply. So, you know, they haven't been able to do much stuff. They'd have done all these kind of festivals. So it would be like us trying to put a mission on in the middle of August when most of us go on our kind of family holiday. It just wouldn't have happened. We couldn't have done it. These were not the most productive times of a... um, 520 BC, uh, and as was the case at the re- rebuilding of the temple, uh, then would be if we were in August now. But progress was slow. They needed some encouragement. So Haggai puts things in perspective. Look at verse 1 to 3 if you can. I've put a little point there. It says, how does it look to you now? So you get to the 17th of October, 520 okay, BC, as we see in verse 1. The same people are addressed, Castorized down there. We're not sure how that's pronounced. Let's just say it quickly and confidently. Zerubbabel, that's okay. And uh, we see also Joshua, that's the political and the spiritual leaders. But now we have a new group that are addressed. Did you notice that? They weren't addressed in chapter one, but they are in chapter two. We have the people. 
the faithful remnant that have returned from exile, who've begun work on the temple, they're now mentioned. Conversation, I guess, during their coffee breaks over their, you know, caramel latte, skinny, you know, all that kind of, whatever they're drinking at that time. I guess at that point would have, would have been something like this. You know, inflation is high. Work is hard. You know, I can't get the business going. I'm having to do all the work here as well. It would have been all sorts of the, the kind of stuff that you'll be chatting about tomorrow at work because they lived in a civilised society like us. But I guess when we get here in these verses, you can imagine that conversation over that caramel latte had become a little bit of in, kind of infested with nostalgia. Leaders have probably spoken, you know, over the, you know, the caramel waffles, which are my favourite, by the way, if you ever meet me in Cafe Nero. Thank you. Um, they've probably been harking back to the glorious nature of the previous temple. Comparisons between a building site of rubble, where they're still hacking away at the same stone they were a month before. Uh, comparisons between that and the, the, just the beauty and the majesty of the previous temple. Lavish with gold. It's not really very helpful motivational material, is it? I guess, gents, it would be like us putting a picture of George Clooney on our shaving mirrors each morning. And as we were there going, look, yeah, I'm pretty rubbish, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> I may as well just slip my throat. You know, it just, it's so bad in comparison. Look at me and George. No, it just doesn't work, does it? it? Anyway, it's not like also the future would look, it was going to look much better. I mean, they had a long job. For the builders, there was little money and little to show for their efforts. And look what Haggai says. He says, how does it look to you now? Can you imagine what they said? Rubbish. Pretty awful. Uh, look at what else he says. Does it not seem to you like nothing? Yeah, it does seem to us like nothing. It's pretty bad. See, unfavorable comparisons between the present and the past, they, they're going to undermine any incentive, aren't they, to persevere? And that's the situation on the ground there, and it's not great, but it's not unusual. It happens when people change jobs, doesn't it? When people change their relationships, you know, it states they're in and out of, of relationships. It even comes when, you know, new ministers come to churches and so on, or you even change churches. It, comparisons are made. And what happens is you generally romanticise the past, and in so doing, you damn the present. It's a very dangerous place to be. And in that process, the future becomes a very bleak prospect for these people. The grass is always greener. You can imagine them saying that, can't you, over their caramel latte. So how does it look to you now? Well, pretty bad. And so God speaks through Haggai and says, look at it, verse 4. There's that stone comes up again, strong, be strong, and work, he says. Now, here's a good bit of a question for you. When, when a pint glass has displaced 50% of its liquid content, is it half full or is it half empty? Uh, you know, the, the, the question behind that is, are you the pessimist or are you the optimist? You know, some of us are more naturally buoyant characters than others. But there's no distinction here in any of God's people and his call on them. Some of the builders may have been at their absolute wit's end with the progress being made. It was so slow in rebuilding the temple. And yet God's call is straightforward and it's utterly complete. And look at the but at the beginning of verse 4. It's really clear, isn't it? 
It shows that their, their nostalgic pessimism, that's, you can't do that, boys. You need to stop that right now. There's got to be a shift in your attitude. They're to be strong, God says. And they're to take courage. You can translate that word strong. And not just, notice, it's not just an intention. No, you've got to do it. Work. Work, he says. When we're thinking about telling our friends about the amazing work of God in our lives, how many times have you actually waited for the occasion for them to say something? How many times have you expected to, for God to intervene in some way, for you to stop a particular sin in your life before you do actually do anything yourself? See, that is not the way here of God. God says to his people, you guys, be strong and work. Do something, essentially. You do it. Be proactive against your sin. Be optimistic, half full in your evangelism. You know, initiate praying with someone in the church or praying for someone in the church. Don't just wait for it to happen. Do it. Work. You know, reading the Bible with someone. Build the temple, he's saying. And the command of God here is very simple. You've got to take the first step. When building God's temple, when doing his work for his church today, there's no excuses. You notice there's no exclusions here in the people of God. It doesn't say, you little group of people over here. Yeah, you may not have the particular gift, but yeah, there's none of that there, is there? Whether it's physical or psychological illness or whatever it may be, a character trait, intelligence or shyness. No, we're all called to be the builders of God's temple here. We all have different gifts, absolutely. But we're all called to build. Be strong, he says, and work. Take that first step. Now, of course, you can directly apply that, as I've just done. But that's evangelism, it's praying with people and reading with people in church, or you know, whatever it may be. You could even apply it to sort of maybe giving and things like that. That is God's work now, but apply it further. And it can also be challenged, I suppose, for us to take the first steps in, against the sins that hold us back from doing that work for God. You know what they are. What stops you reading the Bible with someone? What stops you doing the evangelism? What stops you doing? What are the sins that, you are, that hold you back? You all know what they are. For yourselves, individually. maybe it's something you look on the internet. Maybe it's a magazine. Maybe it's a relationship you're involved in or not involved in. Whatever it may be, what's the thing that holds you back? And what are those first steps you need to be taking in order that that doesn't hold you back anymore? Be strong and work and build God's house. And the great assurance of this passage follows. You see, the investment of prioritising God is seen in the spiritual and the eternal returns of these next verses. Look at them if we can. We are to be strong and to work, to take those first steps. Why? Well, because God makes this wonderful promise. That next little sub-point. I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. I am with you. See, as you take those first steps, Fearful steps as it will be. As we go about God's work, being strong, you are also taking a step of faith. It's, a, it's a, an act of trust in the God who declares and promises, covenants himself to being with us. 
If God were to make the first move, then we would, we'd essentially be robots under his kind of authoritarian control. But we're not made that way. We're actually made in his image, the Bible tells us. And therefore, we have the ability to create, to respond lovingly in a covenantal relationship. We have the ability to decide things responsibly for his glory. As we work for him, as we're strong for him, as we combat those kind of half-empty kind of feelings that kind of can be so prevalent in our lives, as we break through our fears, as we try to battle through depression, God will bless us, God will assure us that we can do it because he's with us. Probably the best moment I ever had as a teacher, I used to be a teacher, was when I was teaching this boys' school in Loughborough. And uh, a particular boy was being mocked by his classmates. Some of you heard this. This is illustration number five, okay, of about ten. So just bear with me. Anyway, he, he was a, um, we were in this class. He was being mocked. He couldn't swim a length of the pool, okay? And so I kind of got, you know, I said, oh, how far can you swim? He said, a width. I went, yeah, okay, show me. Did a width. I said, I'm sure you can do that again. Okay, sir, did another one. Now, I'm not sure, but you look pretty strong there. Do another one. Got, now, got to the end of three widths, and I said, look, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm being a bit rational here, but three widths is a length, okay? I'm sorry, but you, you, know, you can do this. Will you give it a go? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Gave it a go. We started at the shallow end. If you're a teacher, you always do that, so if they drown, that's perfectly legitimate at the end. But if they, so we start at the shallow end, and he starts swimming, and off he went, you know, just spluttering all the way. His, his stroke was a kind of a nuanced stroke, shall we say. Uh, it's a combination between a few. But he was struggling along, and he did his best. And I was calling out, you can do this. You can really do this. Why? His assurance was just that I was one metre away on the side of the pool. The boy neared the end of the, uh, the length, puffing, panting, now doing quite a ridiculous stroke, but he was still moving, so that was okay. But now the wonderful thing was he was being cheered on by the class. They saw that something pretty cool was going on. And as he finished, they all cheered and he was helped out of the water and patted on the back. It was a bit of a kind of dead poet society. Mate. You know, if you've seen that film, it's one of those carpe diem, seize the day, off they went. You know, and it was a great moment for my teaching career. Um, but, you know, I absolutely loved that moment. I remember it very, kind of very dearly. But the boy, despite his fears, he's the one that pushed off. He's the one that initiated the work and the struggle. All his assurance was, was that I was a metre away. You can do it. Be strong. Work. And God says that, but he also says, I'm with you and I'm not a metre away. I'm actually in your heart by my spirit. Friends, you see, God's spirit is right amongst us. If, if we're Christians here today, then... We may be worried that God is, you know, it seems so distant. That our sin is so kind of big in our hearts and our minds right now that he just seems a million miles away. But the call of Haggai is say, consider your ways. Turn back to him. Be obedient. Be strong and work. And there's no excuse because God is right in your heart by his spirit. God will strengthen those who build his house. So don't look back pessimistically in your drinking your caramel latte. 
Rather, look forward, being strong, doing God's work, assured of his strength and presence with you. We're going to turn to our second point now. It's a little bit briefer. So um, just on, uh, on your second point, God will shake the world when he glorifies his temple. So the first spiritual blessing um, for our investment of God, the promise of God's presence with us by his spirit. Now, the blessings now continue, but they kind of reach a climax. Verse 6 to 8, if you cast your eyes down there, they provide the context, if you like, for the final on the most glorious blessing that we'll see in verse 9. It just doesn't get any better there. So verse 6 to 7, the, the, what's, what he's doing is he's laying out the future, the future blessing, as God promises for the people through Haggai, and ultimately, really, for the whole of human human race, really. Because we see here that in the future, God will shake, he says. It's a term he uses again and again through Haggai. He will shake the world. So I will shake the world. I've put a little sub-point there. Now, we do know that when the kingdoms um, that he's speaking about are shaken in verse 6, he's ultimately there talking about the second coming of Jesus. When he comes, he returns to judge all people. We know that because this verse particularly is quoted in Hebrews 12, and that's the context in which it's understood. God will send his son once more, and he will return to judge the living and the dead we know. Therefore, Haggai, he's he's kind of speaking as a prophet in Old Testament times, way more than he actually knew at this stage. Showing at, at a point in history that no one knows except the Father. In, and we see in verse 6, in a little while, it's been a while, but it'd be a little while, God will shake the earth. Now in this stage, uh, they would have understood the shaking as kind of things like earthquakes. And throughout Old Testament history, earthquakes were used by God um, as a kind of supernatural intervention on his part to literally shake but also um, shake people as well. They came without warning. There was no escaping their terror. All nations will be shaken, he's pointing that towards here. And they would have known what that looks like. When God shakes the earth, no one gets away from it. There are no exceptions to his shaking. Now, Haggai and the people, it meant that the nations in the world, at a point in time, would be compelled by God to part with their treasures. That was the kind of the the point that he's making for this moment in history. They would no longer be the hindrance to God's work. As they remember in chapter 1, they'd oppose the rebuilding of the temple. Rather, they would be a support. That's what he's speaking about literally here at the time. That God would shake them and they would no longer resist. They would support the building of the temple. For us, when ultimately God shakes the heavens and earth, you won't be worried about what you're what you're wearing or what job you're in or what house you've got, how have you done the extension or what car you're driving, none of that. Your career won't matter at all. At a time in the future, God will intervene in this world and at that moment, you will not care about anything that you have. You will simply care about the one who has come. And who will, who will that be? Who will essentially be part of this great shaking of the world? Well, we see in the, the end of verse 7. It's when the desired of nations will come. The word uh, desired could actually be translated as the treasure of nations. And that also fits well, very well with verse 8. And if we take it that way, it simply refers to the fact that the treasures of other nations would begin to pour into the temple. That's what he's 
kind of literally talking about at that time. And that was true because Darius, the Persian king, gave loads of money for the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, God demonstrated that the silver and gold is his, as he's put down here, because he gave it to the Persians. And then in Ezra 6, which you can read in a historical account in the Old Testament, that money came back for the rebuilding of the temple. More traditionally, though, that that reference has been pointing towards the desire of the nations has been understood as the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah is the desired of the nations. He said that in Christmas carols. You, you, you remember that? Come desire, nation come, fix in us thy humble home. Ultimately, though, we all need what all the nations desire most. We all need God's ultimate blessing if we're to do his work. We need the desire of nations. We need Christ. For it is he that will provide the ultimate and eternal blessing that we all need. Why? Well, because when he comes, he will fill God's house with glory. We see that promise in verse 9. I will fill this house with glory, he says. Of course, this did happen for the temple. The glory of this present house was to be greater than the glory of the former house. Now, that's surprising, isn't it? Because if you know anything of your Bible history, Solomon's temple, the previous house, the former house, was, was huge. It was glorious. It was majestic. It was full of gold and gems. And it, it seemed so great. And so many people had lavished their wealth on that temple. The first temple was, was seemingly, no one could touch it in its magnificence. And it was had the Ark of the Covenant there, and God dwelt there in his Shekinah glory, it's described as. None of those things the second temple had. So what could this possibly mean, that this temple would have greater glory than the former? Well, the only glory that this temple that they were so busily building at this stage, the only glory that this temple had that the second didn't, was the greatest glory it possibly could have. And that was God's bodily presence in the form of Jesus Christ. You see, this second temple was never finally destroyed. It, it got desecrated, like really kind of knocked down quite a bit in the second century BC. But it hung on. And it's this temple that actually Herod takes hold of, rebuilds and extends. And it's this temple that was stood when Jesus walked into it, as we can read in the Gospel accounts. So you, when you read in John chapter 1, the word became fleshed and lived for a while among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We know that God filled his house, his temple, with glory in two ways. One that is temporal for the time then, one that is ultimate. Because when Christ came, he filled the temple as he now fills his church with the glorious spirit which is in our, many of our hearts today. Oh, he kind of, in so doing, he kind of makes a kind of, not a mockery, but he supersedes the lavish kind of Jewish icon, the temple, and provides for us a focal point of our faith, our hearts, because that's where he dwells now by his spirit. God in the person of Jesus is the great spiritual blessing that divides and determines history. And his glory fills those who by faith become his obedient glorifiers. 
Now, the last blessing, we're, we're very close there to the end. The last blessing that befell the people of God is the most assuring, but it is also the most humbling. Just cast your eyes down. The last half of verse 9, if you possibly can. And in this place, he says, I will grant peace. The blessing of peace, which is literally shalom, is there at the very end of verse 9. And what does this granted peace include? Well, it includes all the returns you've ever wanted on your investments. Consider what working... Just think for these people. They've been building their panelled houses. Yeah, They've been making their lives pretty nice. What did those investments... What were the returns for them? Just nicer houses. But it didn't change the lives that lived inside those houses, did it? But by turning themselves to God, God would now bless them with a peace that would include, yes, in prosperity, as we'll see at the end of chapter 2. But that is not certain. But also, ultimately, includes the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, peace with God eternally. So from God's approval of their obedience, there flowed this profound peace and happiness that will be granted in the courts of the new temple. Back in Leviticus, the Lord had told his people who were preparing to go and settle in the land, he described them the peace, the the shalom that they would all know if they were obedient. Leviticus 26 actually begins with these promises. It says, if you obey my commands, I will grant peace in the land. I will look on you with favour. And isn't that your ultimate goal? That the the almighty creator, sovereign, all-powerful God would look on you with favour? Friends, if you have never said sorry to God, if you've never turned your, repented and turned your life around to him, and in utter humility just said, I'm sorry for ignoring you, please pour out your favour on me then why don't you do that today? Because there is no greater return for any investment you can ever make. There's an investment in just turning yourself to God. The investment is infinite and eternal. The forgiveness of sins, which brings eternal peace with God. If you are one of God's people, then recognise the blessings that are given to those who do repent. But what about us today? What blessings will you have? Will you be one of these repentant people? Will you trust in God for the blessings that you can know in your life physically but also spiritually in time and in eternity? And I guess this is the question that that you need to think about tonight and tomorrow morning and throughout the week. Certainly God normally blesses obedience to him, whether offered by an individual, a city, or a nation. Of course, the the greatest blessings come here. Have you noticed? Not because of our obedience, but despite our obedience. Namely, the blessing of Jesus Christ. You see, the greatest blessing that we gain is through no investment that we have made at all. Because God has made it for us. He says in Acts 20 that God bought his church with his own blood. But in in this secondary sense, as we see in Haggai, we make sound investment by repenting of our sins, by turning back to a loving Heavenly Father. And when we do so, he welcomes us. 
He opens up his arms to us and receives us as his adopted children and bestows on us as co-inheritors with Christ all the blessings of eternity with him. Friends, I think the great point of this um, second, first part of uh, Haggai 2 is this. Obedience is a place of blessing. It is where we want to dwell as Christians. And as those who've heard Haggai's message, I, I guess you need to, we all need to rebuke our kind of self-absorption. Your God neglect. You need to turn away from that and orientate your life toward and for God and know his blessing as a result. Last week we were rebuked and challenged to consider our priorities and this week we are encouraged to persevere. Our investments in God and his work will bring good returns. So we ought to do God's work and be strong in that and he will bless that obedience with his wonderful presence his assuring, majestic glory. And lastly and most graciously, he will give us that eternal peace that we've, be, that we've been designed for and that we all long for. So consider your ways and invest wisely. Let's pray as we close. Maybe just a moment of quiet to consider our own ways and where we need to invest our hearts, our lives, our time, our money. Just a moment of quiet. Heavenly Father, we hear uh, the call of Haggai too that we will be strengthened as we are obedient uh, in your work. Because we know that you are with us. There's great assurance, uh, it's great power and it's great joy to know that the Spirit dwells in our hearts. But as we look forward, we realise that you will do a, a greater and more mighty work in the future as you will shake the world and your Son will return to judge. Lord, help us to analyse our own hearts and minds and to know whether we have the peace of Christ in our hearts or we'll shake with the world. Lord, we know that that peace only comes through trusting in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. And if some of us need to do that today for the first time or perhaps for the nth time, may we do it. May we turn to the Lord Jesus and know the peace that we can only have with him that goes beyond anything that we can know today. Amen. We're going to sing to close. Uh, just as the musicians come out. We've got a couple of songs, really. I kind of echo of what we've just been learning, really. The first one, we belong to the day, recognising we're a day that speaks of it. It's a New Testament phrase. It's now, but it's, it's also the future. 
and we're, we'll be strong because uh, we're our refuge and our strength comes in Christ alone. And then the great old hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Let's sing. Day.